Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to this week's Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. I'm talking today with author and scientist Mark Miodovnik. I'm a professor of materials at UCL in London and director of the Institute of Making. Mark just wrote the book, Stuff Matters, exploring the marvelous materials that shape our man-made world. It's all about some of the amazing science and stories and the materials that make up the things in our everyday lives. I've always been fascinated with materials. It, it, it seems the obvious starting point for me. I'm not one of these people who looks up at the stars and thinks, wow, I need to spend my life thinking about what's up there, when actually around me, all the stuff I didn't understand. You know, I, I, I felt like I should start somewhere. <laughs> if you look around you, you know, the world is full of stuff. <laughs> And everything is made from something. If you take all that stuff away, then you end up sitting in a muddy field. Um, so where did all that stuff come from? Who made it? How is it made? How do you understand where it comes from and how it works? That's what the book's about. It's a big subject. <laughs> it is a very big subject. Material science covers any substance that anything is made of, including the basics like metal, paper, and plastic, to cutting-edge nanotechnology. He spent a lot of time thinking and writing about a huge branch of physics that kind of gets overlooked. I mean, I think material science is just not known to the public, you know, full stop. So the, my, my main aim with the book is to say, you know, materials, they aren't just shiny, different colored blobs of stuff. They, they have inner lives, they have histories, they, have, they embody human needs and desires. I, I just kind of wanted to get it out there and get, get it essentially more known. Materials are so important that almost all eras of human history are named after the materials we use. There's the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and some people say we're in the Silicon Age. The real crucial moment is when our human ancestors put stones in a fire and turn them into metal. And can you just can you imagine what that moment must have been like? You know, you know, you're doing something. You know, you're probably building fires every day, cooking with them, and then one day you realize that. Some of the stones are not immutable. They can transform, and a little silvery blob of metal appears. Um, and we're pretty sure it was copper was the first metal. And, it, it, you know, it changed everything. And so metals metals are the perfect materials for tools. They're, all, they're almost as hard as stone, but they're plastic. So they're somewhere between a stone and a piece of plastic. They're hard, but they don't, they're not brittle. They don't shatter in most cases. And that, that's... In fact, they have many other secrets, but that, that's, that's the start of the book, and that's the start of, of materials as defining a human civilization. And I really do think that is true. It's very hard to argue against. People say, well, language and, or, you know, dance, art, but we are, a, we are a species who transforms materials, and there aren't any others that do that. Though it doesn't have its own era of history, glass has had a profound impact on human development. Yeah, glass is one of those special materials where... Uh, the story starts, you know, basically in the Egyptian time when they were mucking about with transforming the desert sand, which they had a very pure form of quartz in the Libyan desert, still is actually, and they could make quite clear bits of bits of glass. And they, of course, it meant a lot to them because they were all about transformation, right, from life to death. They had a lot of of their religion based around transformation. Glass was a very important emblem emblem of transformation that you could take sand and make something gem like you know, transparent and, and, and have, have that gem-like quality. But they never, they couldn't make enough of it and they couldn't make good, good enough quality glass to do anything with it other than that, really. It was decorative. And if you fast forward, well, then you get the Romans who really do work out how it works and they 
in the West, there, there becomes a tradition of glasswork and glass making. The window is the window is kind of invented, and glass vessels are invented, and there's a tradition of working glass. But in the East, so in China and Korea and Japan, where technology, you know, in the Middle Ages, technology is the most advanced in the whole world. They they don't develop glass as a monolithic material. They use it as a glaze for the outside of their pots and their ceramics, and they become so good like that uh, at that that they either they don't need glass or it doesn't happen to be culturally important to them for whatever reason. However, in Europe, glass was the center of a lot of attention, and that led to some really amazing things. The difference between the West and the East becomes very important when the lens, the lens is invented because the lens in the West. Mean, first of all, means spectacles. So it means that scholars can you know, li live for longer and still be able to read and write. Then the telescope is invented because of the lens, because you put two of them together, you get a telescope, and that allows Galileo to to really nail the, the thing about it's you know it's the Earth that goes around the sun. Right? He sees he sees moons on other planets. That is huge. Now without a telescope, that doesn't happen. You can't see them with the naked eye. It would never happen. So without a transparent material that you can you can make into a lens. You don't have the telescope, you don't have the microscope, so you don't have astrophysics, you don't have our understanding of the universe, you don't have biology. <laughs> and, then, and then the next thing that happens is that the test tube is born, um, which means that you can do experiments with chemistry and you can see reactions very carefully and you can see precipitates and color changes. And before that, alchemy, as it was, was down in a very difficult place. It was in a hearth and there's smoke and you had to look down into a fire. It's a very difficult thing to see. So. You can argue really quite <laughs> clearly that glass invents chemistry, biology, and physics. <laughs> and not, not the whole of physics, but a lot of physics, optics, and all these things. It doesn't happen in the East. They were well, well ahead of us in everything else. Gunpowder, they had machines, they invented paper, writing, money, but they didn't have glass, and they therefore maybe, and you know, it's, you can't ever prove this, but maybe that's the reason that they stagnated technologically, and the West, in the end, overtook the East until recently. And and that I think is a very compelling tale. You know, modern materials have also laid the groundwork for entirely new ways to communicate, you know, in ways I never even really considered. With the chapter on plastic, of course, plastic covers a wide range of materials, actually. Just the word is, is too big in a in a funny way, but I I wanted to I wanted to write the wrong that as I see it that plastic is thought of as somehow a disposable material that people maybe feel negatively about on balance, and I wanted to do something about that in that chapter. And I thought, which plastic should I focus on in order to kind of in order to to give it the best the best chance of doing that? And I realised that. The original plastics were probably, were probably the ones to choose, and I chose celluloid in the end. And celluloid, maybe people don't probably know that it's a plastic. It, I mean, it invented cinema. I mean, with the, the word film is, is a film of plastic called celluloid. Without that material, our visual culture would be so astoundingly different. It's hard to even understand or come come to terms with it. I mean. The plastic celluloid invented a new way of telling stories, um, which we're all addicted to now, called you know, called the movies. And <laughs> it's almost impossible to know how a new material will change the world. You know, right now there's a whole library of composites and polymers that could potentially be the next glass or plastic. Well, yeah, I have a I have a chapter on aerogels. This is one of those chapters of of a wondrous material that doesn't really 
isn't yet part of our everyday lives, but but you know it feels like it will be, and that they are they are very very light foams made of things like glass, but they can be made of anything, and they in the case of uh, the aerogel silica aerogel which I talk about in the book, it's ninety nine point eight percent air, so it's only point two percent solid, and yet it is a solid. So the difference between it and the air around it is just 0.2%. And you, you can see it when you have, hold a piece in your hand. There is a quite a, it doesn't feel like there's a dividing line between the material and the air. There is a, there's a, it feels like a sort of diffuse interface between them. The stuff is just like nothing you've ever seen. It, it, it doesn't feel like it's part of human technology. <laughs> um, and it's blue, but it's not blue for any reason. There's no dye in it. It's blue because the foam which it's, it is a foam. Um, the, the holes in the foam are nanoscale and, and that they scatter blue light preferentially. So that means that when white light hits it, the blue light reflects back more, more than the red and the yellow and the green. And so that gives it a blue hue. And that's exactly why the sky is blue. It's, it's, it's light scattering preferentially in the blue region. So yeah, it's like holding a piece of, of sky in your hand. Today, more researchers than ever are hard at work developing the materials with novel properties that engineers and industry might someday rely on. Fusing material science with medicine seems like it could be the next great frontier for the field. We've already seen the impact of hip replacements, which is a materials technology, but now we're getting things like being able to grow organs for people, when, so when their liver or kidney fail, um, that's all going on now. All that research is going on. People have already had implants of, of you know, throats from their own cells grown in scaffolding materials. Um, new cartilage for knees, uh, new bones. There's so many possibilities. Mark himself has helped set up the Institute of Making at the University of College London to spur more interdisciplinary work in developing new materials by people you might not think of as material scientists. Yeah, so I mean, I've been obviously doing research and, and in material science for a long time, 20 years, and um, along the way I got interested in why materials are not just technically good, like strength and toughness, but also how they feel, they smell, they, you know, the, the, the attributes of materials that you would more associate with, with, with design and jewellery and fashion and architecture. And I realised there was a big dividing line between the communities who develop materials for one and for the other, and it, it struck me as crazy because, you know, we have contracts from aerospace companies to develop new materials. They, they pour millions of pounds into developing materials for jet engines. I did my PhD on that. Why aren't architecture firms and designers and fashion designers pouring millions of pounds into new materials? Because, you know, there is so much more that we could create. And I was interested in why that those relationships didn't occur with material science. And I, I wanted to somehow open that conversation up. But we needed a place where not just did you have samples of materials, but you also needed the tools to develop new prototypes and materials, and so that's what the institute making is. It has prototyping tool, you know, tools and machining um, equipment, but it also has this materials library. And not just that, it has it's a place where the, it does not owned by any one discipline. That's the important thing. It's not owned by science. It's not owned by engineering. It's not owned by architecture or design or art or anthropology or English or any of these things. It's a place where they can all meet and and talk about materials and, and actually do projects together. What's, um, what's next for you? Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, 
I've spent 20 years getting to this point where <laughs> we have an institute that can do the kind of work I want to do. So I just want to crack on with it really now. I now have all the bits in place to do some really exciting research and create new materials that have never existed before. And that's what I'm going to do. Thanks again to Mark Miodovnik, author of Stuff Matters, Exploring the Marvelous Materials That Shape Our Man-Made World, available now at most bookstores. Check out also our website, physicscentral.com, for more podcasts, blog posts, resources, and so much more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>